I'm Brian Walsh, and from Impact Alpha, this is Returns on Investment, a show about impact investing. Let's privatize the risk. Let's assign the risk to entities that are most able to bear it. Investors, right? People with the wealth and the knowledge. Uh, And let's socialize the gains. Let's have the public benefit from these programs at no risk to them. That's Tracy Palangian, CEO of Social Finance. Today on the show, she speaks with Impact Alpha's David Bank about prevention, risk, and a new kind of career impact bond. Let's jump right into their conversation. I've been really looking forward to this conversation, Tracy. Um, you've been a great teacher of mine on, on so many fronts. Um, and the, the, I want to just jump off with prevention, which, you know, obviously in the current context uh, uh, seems like a great idea. So um, uh, social impact bonds and prevention, just, just tell us why prevention has, has been so important and, and why it's so relevant now. Well, first of all, great to be with you, David. The feeling is neutral. You've been a great teacher of mine as well. Um, Social impact bonds and prevention. Yes, prevention has always been one of the animating conditions for the social impact bond uh, model. Um, As you appreciate, um, we all know that prevention works far better than remediation, but often government, which is a key stakeholder in the social impact bond context, has all kinds of barriers that make it very difficult for them to invest in prevention, right? We all know that job training is cheaper than incarceration. We all know that vaccines are cheaper than uh, treating disease. You know, our healthcare system is more like a sick care system. You might think that, um, you know, pre-positioning masks and, and ventilators is, is more is more cost effective than, than trying to catch up later. Exactly. Like that pandemic preparedness is another form of prevention. But for all kinds of reasons, you know, governments, because maybe culturally or their budgeting processes or even just how they are operated, make it very difficult to invest in prevention because they have to pay for remediation, which is the status quo. And where do you find the money and the attention to invest in prevention in addition to funding remediation? And the social impact bond was very much a response to that challenge. How do we use private capital to fund these preventative measures and then allow government to pay at the back end after these preventative measures have borne fruit in terms of outcomes? So I think, yeah, I think a lot of people think of social impact bonds, and I'm I'm sure you'll have the, I'm going to ask you to give the very quick um, explanation of how they work so that folks who haven't heard of them by now um, can get the background. But they've keyed on this outcomes orientation, which I want to get to. But effectively, what it is is a way to finance prevention, right? Exactly. Finance prevention and more. So uh, the way it works simply is government um, defines a policy priority that they want to address, whether it's housing the homeless or improving Uh, employment outcomes for a particular population, then based on that policy objective, we construct a pay-for-success contract that articulates those set of outcomes and, uh, and then find the right set of interventions to achieve those outcomes, typically delivered by nonprofits. Now, the nonprofits don't have the balance sheet to enter into a performance-based contract with government where they'll say, okay, we'll pay you after you achieve the outcomes down the road. They have working capital needs. And that's where the impact investor comes in. The impact investor puts up the money, funds a nonprofit to deliver services to more people. And upon achieving outcomes that the government has stipulated, the government would then repay those investors based on the level of outcomes achieved. And you if we don't achieve those outcomes, the investors are out of their money. 
you mentioned homelessness, and that's uh, in the in the current pandemic context a very important aspect. It, we, out here in California, we're 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 taken with the notion that um, the state government has found all these resources to house homeless in to prevent the spread of COVID, um, buying up hotel rooms and opening up more more shelters and 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 and, and whatnot. The question comes up: Couldn't we have found those resources earlier? Well, we should harness this momentum and this extraordinary um, effort that Gavin Newsom has put forth. You're absolutely right. Um, a little bit more investment, both in terms of money and just thoughtfulness, could hopefully transform this extraordinary spend. I think, like David, 150 million or something like that, um, shelters and leasing up hotel rooms across the state. Um, a little bit further investment could potentially help um, these folks emerge out of homelessness on a permanent basis. And, and we have a great intervention called Permanent Supportive Housing. It's tried and true. Uh, it's basically housing plus important wraparound support services around mental health and behavioral health, et cetera. And it's proven to keep folks' lives stable and uh, really address homelessness at scale. And that's something that has been or c- could be funded through social impact bonds or pay for success contracts? Absolutely. There exists um, several uh, social impact bonds ar- across the country in Colorado, uh, California and Santa Clara and Massachusetts. There are projects in development in Southern California and Anchorage and Tennessee, uh, an active project in Austin, Texas. Yes, this is actually a very familiar social impact bond application. And just to be just to be clear, the social impact bond part of it would have private investors help finance those interventions so that governments could both reduce their immediate outlays and also be assured that they would get the outcomes that they're paying for, so as in pay for success, right? Yes. And I'm so glad you brought that up, David, because there's a distinction between social impact bonds, which involve private capital, as one what we call pay for success strategy. But there's a set of pray for success principles which are really important to help direct resources toward outcomes instead of outputs. And some of them don't involve private capital. So what I'm saying is government's already spending so much money, hundreds of millions of dollars toward addressing homelessness during the pandemic. Um, they could actually redirect that funding without even the use of private capital to get better outcomes for the most vulnerable. Ah, well, that's 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 interesting. I, I always did think, you know, I think there was been cases where folks have bristled at the notion of the private investors making a return on some social problem, even though they're really making the return on the reduction of that social problem. But in any event, they said, well, if this is such a good idea, why doesn't government just do it? And I think folks like you are like, hallelujah, let's just let government can can just do it. Um, You're absolutely right. (laughs) I always say, David, I was like, the social impact bond is the second best solution, right? Yes, government should be deploying their dollars around outcomes, period. And, And that would be fantastic. Um, and the social bond comes in if they don't want to take on that risk. And that's why the risk transfer aspect of this, in addition to the prevention emphasis, is also a key feature of the social impact bond. As you know, I'm very taken with this notion of, of risk and sort of who who can bear it and who and who has to bear it. And mm-hmm. I think there's been a, a shift. I mean, the pandemic has kind of brought it out in stark relief. Um, you know, a lot of risk over the last few decades has been pushed on to individuals or small businesses or, 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 or entrepreneurs, 
um, and taken off of bigger institutions, including government, but also, you know, in some level, corporations and others. And now it's become clear that these kind of systemic risks have to be dealt with by folks that can bear them. So I'm just trying to get my head around, like, is there going to, is there some kind of reallocation of risk that is likely to come out of this pandemic? And and does the sort of, is there some, some lessons or some guidance from, from your work um, that help us think, think that through? I, I know this is a, a vague, but I, I, you, that's why you're going to be my teacher on this. No, David, we'll, we're all figuring this out. <laughs> but what I think has resonated with folks with the social impact bond tool is exactly what you said. Let's privatize the risk. Let's assign the risk to entities that are most able to bear it. Um, investors, right? People with the wealth and the knowledge. Uh, and let's socialize the gains. Let's have the public benefit from uh, these programs at no risk to them. Uh, and that is a core tenet of the social impact bond um, and also a core tenet of um, pay for success, the model itself. And um, it, it, one particular uh, instrument that we've been developing at social finance is uh, a tool called the career impact bond. And if you're interested in, in talking a little bit more about it, basically borrowing on those same pay for success principles, principles around risk transfer, principle around outcomes orientation, the principle around tapping private capital for these uh, projects with broad public gain, uh, but expressing it very differently. Well, that's exactly what I wanted to talk about, because that's, that's I think, the perfect example in the sense that uh, you know, for example, the student loan crisis, pe students take on enormous risk, enormous debt um, on the promise that their, you know, possibly four year education is going to get them a degree and a job and and, and, and then they're going to, you know, pay off this debt and and have a, a stable income and, a, and you know, a middle class, perhaps uh, uh, lifestyle none of those things are assured and all the risk is on the individual. You're absolutely right. Our entire kind of education and training system, even going to college, most of the risk is actually borne by the individual and for low-income individuals, which is um, because of, you know, social finance is a nonprofit. We have a strong mission orientation. Uh, and for people who are most vulnerable, the low-income folks among us, um, it's uh, having them bear the risk is just completely inappropriate. So how does a career impact bond flip that? Yeah, so the, the as you mentioned, the status quo is that individuals bear the risk to go to college, um, accepting the full risk that they could end up with no degree or no employable skills and then wrestle with debt for decades. And it's not just for college-going kids, right? It's also for working adults who might want to you know, upskill, gain a new set of skills through a certification program. They put a pause on paying work um, you know, to gain new skills, to go up the ladder, but which may never pan out, right? So what's the result? You know, 45, I think 45 million Americans holding $1.6 trillion of student debt. And that is the context that we've been thinking about. How do we use pay for success principles to flip this on its head and actually use um, impact investors to come in to take the risk for low-income individuals who want to upskill themselves, who want to go to college to gain new, new skills to compete in the new economy? Um, and, and the career impact bond builds on the income share agreement model that has been around for for some time. The in impact, it, sorry, income share agreements generally have generally been used for 
for college education. I think the career impact bond you're thinking is broader, as you said, for more vocational skills and 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 nursing and computer programming and coding schools and and whatnot, right? Exactly. So um, it's interesting that the income share agreement was actually uh, born several decades ago, but it hasn't really. Um, come into vogue as of the last uh, decade or so, initially in South America and then increasingly being adopted in America. Uh, and you're absolutely right, David, in the post-secondary arena, several four-year universities, I think now getting into the dozens, Purdue University being the leader uh, among uh, four-year universities to embrace income share agreements. But it's precisely a response to this risk question. Let's take the risk away from the student and help level the playing field so that people only repay their obligation if they have income. Because right now, if you take on student debt, whether or not you have a job or whether you have income or not, you're stuck with the debt forever. And the income share agreement, by definition, inherent in its name, is based on the income that uh, you make. So the more you make, the more you pay, but there are all kinds of formulaic protections in the income sharing terms. Well, that's what I wanted to get to because there has been some pushback on some of these income share agreements and how pro-student versus how pro-lender they they are. And I know um, you've been thinking about that in the context of the career impact bond. So what are the key kind of protections for the the borrower, as it were, or the student? Yeah. So while there are lots of features that we share with the income share agreement, not least uh, the terms, you know, so th- there are four terms for an income share agreement, the percent share of income, the number of years that you pay, whether there's a threshold, an income threshold um, that dictates when you begin to pay and whether there there is a, a cap which is the total amount that you end up paying. So those four features are the same for um, all income share agreements. But the way we approach it at social finance, hence you know, uh, our attempt at maybe um, calling it something different, is because uh, we really want to place the learner, the student, the individual at the center of the entire arrangement. Uh, We focus on the low-income individual. So the low-income individual is not just looking for help in terms of tuition. They also need important wraparound supports in order to persist and graduate and actually land a job. Um, You know, so uh, the Korean Impact Bond not only finances tuition, but also importantly, uh, helps to address the barriers that prevent people from persisting and graduating. So um, extra job coaching and case management, the existence of an emergency aid fund to meet childcare, rent, transportation, life needs, so that we can have the greatest chance of this person um, succeeding in this training program. Um, the second important differentiating feature, David, is that in addition to targeting a low-income population, is that we are focused on middle skills uh, jobs. Um, I think it's uh, a more old-fashioned way of saying it might be vocational skills, but um, typically programs that do not require a four-year degree, uh, jobs that are in recession-resistant industries like IT, like the number of IT administration jobs are actually growing right now, um, uh, high-demand industries like nursing and the allied health fields, those jobs we expect to continue to grow. And there are many jobs along that nursing ladder, for example, that do not require a four-year degree and you just work your way up. So is there a way for this kind of financing model to um, play an important role for low-income people to gain new skills to um, compete in the new economy. Now, I know you've got some 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 pilots and some initial projects going. Um, I wonder how they're 
impacted by you know social distancing and sheltering in place and maybe maybe folks aren't able to take advantage of even this good deal uh, in the current situation it's actually um, amazing to see how quickly our provider partners have switched to online training so our first couple of career impact bond deals are focused on um, coding skills and it administration skills and it's extraordinary i have kids in college and and to see universities kind of switch online took weeks um, these amazing uh, training providers that we work with, it took them days to go fully online. Um, and uh, obviously, the jury is still out to make sure that we get the same kind of student outcomes and job placement outcomes. But uh, the transition has been uh, surprisingly more seamless for these uh, partners. Now, just to take it full circle now, investors can invest in career impact bonds. I think you guys are are raising a fund to do that. So what is the sort of, in, what would an impact, in, how would an impact investor get involved with this? So, okay, excellent question. So this is how a career impact bond works. So uh, impact investors fund um, low-income individuals to access these training programs. It could be a certificate in nursing. It could be um, getting a license in truck driving. It could be um, getting certified to be um, an IT administrator. These are typically programs that last three to 12 months, but you end up with a set of employable skills that are in demand. Um, the student goes to these programs at no upfront cost to them, but they enter into a career impact bond contract, which is governed importantly by a student bill of rights. Um, massive transparency around the terms, what these students get in addition to um, getting the program, are the, the important wraparound supports that I mentioned, et cetera, et cetera, and, and, and outlining all the payment terms that uh, all the parties have signed forth. Once the student gains employment over a particular income threshold, um, they begin to pay back into the pool. They're uh, uh, governed by a set of um, protections around uh, thresholds and caps, and the investors get recoup their hopefully their principal plus a modest rate of return out of the, those future income um, streams um, repaid by the students. We became a fund manager last fall to support the career impact bond strategy so that we can fund many different programs across the country to benefit many different people to land good jobs in all kinds of occupations that are good jobs, relatively recession resistant, and uh, represent high growth industries. So um, we, we, we called the fund the UP Fund, the UP Fund. Uh, it's a play on words, you know, unlocking potential, uncommon partnerships, upskilling, you name it. Um, and uh, we were targeting a 40 to 50 million pool of catalytic capital for the fund. And we executed a first close in December of last year, so four months ago, and we're halfway there with our capital raise. So we're really excited um, for the Career Impact Bond and for the fund to be uh, one of the solutions as we work toward an equitable recovery. I was, th I was thinking, you, 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 I know you started this as a, in a, in a sense in a, as a response to the whole future of work conversation and what were the jobs of the future going to be like. And I have the sense that the future of work has arrived. Um, uh, you, you, so you were prescient, perhaps. I don't know, but you're absolutely right, David. The future of work has arrived. And, and we developed this strategy really to help address the lack of economic mobility. I mean, there's just so much rich data 
Raj Chetty and others um, speaking to the collapse of the American dream, even before COVID-19, right? And uh, I mean, you've heard these statistics. I think after the war, 90% of Americans out-earned their parents. And I think the statistic right now is around half um, half of, of us were born after 1980 are on track to make more than our parents, right? Um, just catastrophic. And what scares me, David, is that we're even going to emerge as a more unequal society after the pandemic. So yes, the Korean Pipe Bond was very much initially a response around the future of work, around rising economic inequality, uh, as well as addressing the skills mismatch in the country. Now, the last piece might change with with coronavirus um, because there'll be new jobs being created while old jobs are going to go away. But I think that the, the impact thesis still holds. Well, Tracy Palangian, Social Finance, thank you so much for, for joining us today and, and, and good luck with all that. We'll be watching it closely. Thanks so much for your partnership, David. Talk to you soon. That's going to do it for this episode of Returns on Investment. Also check out our newest podcast, Impact Briefing, providing you all the information of the week in impact investing in under 10 minutes. You can read more about Tracy Palangian and Social Finance at impactalpha.com. Only subscribers receive full access to Impact Alpha content including deal flow, job postings, and a Slack channel. Thanks to David Bank, Tracy Palangian, and our producer Isaac Silk, who also wrote our theme song. I'm Brian Walsh, head of impact at the fintech company LiquidNet. We'll see you, in some sense of the word, next time.